Welcome to Listening Through Time with the New York Philharmonic. This is Barbara Hawes, the archivist and historian of the New York Philharmonic. In this podcast series, we are going inside the orchestra, comparing how Philharmonic musicians over time played certain licks or passages in a variety of works. Are they the same or different, and why? Our guides in this journey are the Philharmonic players themselves, both current and former members. For the Philharmonic's 175th anniversary season, Sony Classical released a 65 CD box set of the orchestra's recordings dating from 1917 through 1996. And this got us thinking about new ways of listening and assessing the Philharmonic's history. Generally, recordings are identified by the conductor or composer rather than the orchestra. We speak of the conductor's interpretation, his vision of the work. Rarely do we listen for what a particular group of players might bring to the piece. And we have never listened to a set of recordings to discern long past influences that may still be heard in the playing of the orchestra. But that is the very opportunity offered by the Philharmonic's vast recording collection, one of the longest recording legacies in the world. What do we hear beyond the interpretation of a single conductor? Beyond the changes in the instruments themselves, or a long-lost style of playing, can we hear echoes of the past that may still be living on through the players themselves? For the real archive of the New York Philharmonic is sitting on stage. It is the musicians, rehearsing and performing together, side by side, day in, day out, for years on end. Working in a symphony orchestra is like no other job. Physical proximity and sensitive cooperation is required for decades. And in this intimate, confined space, the stage, the experience and memories of one player are transferred to another in the next generation, most times imperceptibly. That player takes that experience, adds to it, and in turn passes on the memory into the future. For the New York Philharmonic is a musician's orchestra. While the players inhabit and express each maestro's point of view, in this ensemble, the players themselves provide the continuity. Today, we are joined by Orrin O'Brien, who joined the bass section of the Philharmonic in 1966 and will be at opening night coming up here in 2017. Welcome, Orrin. <laughs> Hi, good Hi. to be here. Good. So, Orrin, this is... Uh, August 25th, this is Leonard Bernstein's, would have been Leonard Bernstein's 99th birthday. I can't think of anyone else I'd rather share this with than you, because he's the one who hired you, right? That's true. That's true. He did. Since one of the early, I mean, you did a lot of recordings that fall as Mm -hmm. you were starting out, but Mm -hmm. one of the first ones was Mahler 1, and with Lenny being so identified with Mahler, I thought it'd be interesting to listen Oh. We'll listen to a little bit of that. Okay, of actual, that recording. Of that recording, right. And do that. And we have okay. Mahler's, we have the actual score that Lenny used for that recording, okay. you know? So, which is, you well, know, I Well, if we don't... could do the beginning of the slow movement for the bass solo.
It was so exciting. It was so exciting because I remember, first of all, there was a big change in the bass world around 1960, 61. We all of us switched from gut strings, which are on all the old Philharmonic recordings up to the 1960. They're all on gut strings. And of course, in the 1920s, cellos also used gut strings. But the rest of the string world changed to steel, and it was much easier to keep in tune, and it was more brilliant, and it projected better. And the bass world changed uh, in 1960-61 because of the Gunther Schuller Bass Quartet, which four of us played. Two members of the Philharmonic and me and another uh, bass player, all students of Zimmerman. And uh, we found that the, the gut strings did not hold the pitches as well. So Fred and I switched to steel. And when I joined the Philharmonic, Bob Bernand was still playing gut strings. So that bass solo is an authentic, from Mahler's time, sound of the gut strings. Wow. And it's really very difficult to play in tunes, much harder to play gut strings than it is steel. My teacher used to say, with steel strings, one in every 10 people can be really good player. With gut, it's one in 100 players. Wow. That was so difficult to control because they, they changed with the weather. They swelled up when it was humid. They shrank when it was dry and it was cold. They went down and it was too close to the fingerboard. And if it was hot, they swelled up. And it was, it was very difficult to control. So I admire Bob Bernand for that playing, that beautifully in tune and smooth sound and smooth shifting. He was a very good musician. Well, And what did you think of Lenny's Tempe in that? Well, I... I had naturally I had studied the solo. That's one of the things you prepare for any audition, and I thought it was very considerate because it's easier to play faster. If you have dum, bum, bum, first of all, then the first two measures feel endless when you're waiting to play, and the timpani is just playing by himself. It is agony. Also, the other hundred people on the stage are all staring at you, or they, they should be looking away, but very often they can't help staring. They wonder if the, if the bass player is going to mess it up this time. It's difficult, not so difficult technically, but musically to make sense out of something that's such a well-known nursery rhyme, and yet it has its pathos, and yet this is... One time I heard the Chicago Symphony with Heitink play it with all nine basses, which was how Mahler started out. In all the books about Mahler, it says he started out wanting the whole section to play. But I'm sure in those years, not everybody was such a great player, and he abandoned it and decided only one bass. So, but I thought it sounded beautiful. It was a wonderful sort of distant, like in the forest sound. But I, I have to say I admire Bob Renan tremendously. He was a wonderful player. When Bernstein came in yes. to, uh, how would he kind of start a rehearsal? For, well, first of all, he'd look around and say hello to the various members of the orchestra that he had a personal relationship, like the first flute, Julie Baker, the first oboe, Harold Gomberg, their heroes, Jimmy Chambers, the first horn. And I have to tell you, the thing that I couldn't get over was people in the orchestra said he's hard to follow. And I thought, that's ridiculous. He's the, one of the clearest conductors I ever played with in my life. I was used to playing with a lot of people on the outside that weren't half as clear. And he, he showed everything in his body language. If, he, if you had an afterbeat, he would give it to you with his elbow while he was concentrating on something. He, was, he had everything going on, and his body language was phenomenal. So I couldn't understand why they thought he was difficult to follow. I thought he was very easy to follow. Hmm. I worked with him before at the Met uh, in the 1960s. I played extra bass in the ring cycle, seventh bass, uh, because Eric Leinsdorf wanted a slightly 
um, heavier, more numerous bass section, and they squeezed me into the pit for that. So I happened to be available for Bernstein's uh, Falstaff, which was, I think, 1964, if I recall, and uh, that was very, very exciting. I started out coming to Juilliard in 1954, and the word got around immediately that Carnegie Hall was hiring ushers. And I ran down there, and I got a job ushering in October of 1954. And I ushered for the whole two years of the next, uh, till 1956, when my teacher told me, you're not practicing enough, you're coming to, t you're ushering too many concerts. So I quit after two years, but I heard every performance of the New York Philharmonic for two solid years. The only time I took off was Friday nights. I had to play at the, Ju the Juilliard Orchestra once a month. We had one concert a month with the conductor. Jean Morel, who also was a guest conductor of the Philharmonic, and also a, he conducted on the staff of the Met quite frequently. So um, I, I really feel that those two years of ushering and soaking in the Philharmonic tradition prepared me better for my lessons, because I could watch what my teacher and the rest of the bass section were doing, uh, and and be educated about exactly what kind of bowing to choose and sort of looking at the fingerings. I was always uh, stationed as a, as a taller usher. I was stationed downstairs because it was thought that the taller ushers could intimidate the wealthy customers better because the wealthy customers always wanted to go down the aisle when the orchestra was playing. If they were late, they wanted to take their seats. We had to physically restrain them from going down the aisle. So, uh, so I was lucky enough to, to be downstairs and hear all those concerts from from that position so your audition I yes. mean so what can you can you can you kind of give us a, a blow-by-blow of what that was like well first of all the audition system in every orchestra consists of preliminary auditions which you have to write a letter of application and tell your background and then they decide who is worthy of being chosen to waste the time of the orchestra committees that are listening to you so I had auditioned for the Philharmonic twice previously. I auditioned 1956 when I was a student at Juilliard because my teacher, who had been a member of the orchestra 36 years, he joined in 1930, he was hired by Toscanini. Who is this? This is Frederick Zimmerman, okay. who was the assistant principal for most of the years that he was in the orchestra. And he, um, he thought that I was ready to take an audition. I, I didn't think about it because there were no women in the orchestra except for the second harp who was not a regular contracted member. And I just thought, well, that's kind of unrealistic. I'm still a student, although I did have plenty of orchestra experience by then. I had played two years in the Pasadena Symphony before I came to New York, sitting next to my teacher, Milton Kestenbaum, who was a member of the NBC under Toscanini. And when he came to Los Angeles, he, he did radio and television work and recording work, and the rest of the time he, he did a lot of teaching. So he put me on the first stand with him uh, in the passing the symphony and said just copy whatever I do don't ask me any questions just try to play exactly what I play and I'll tell you at your lesson why so that's what I had two years of that plus I had other jobs and uh, you know I, I was an experienced orchestra player already but I didn't know the repertoire the way that they expected uh, people applying for an orchestra job uh, would do. They they expected you to have a couple of years at least experience in a lesser orchestra, just like the baseball teams. Right. They wanted you to be in the boondocks and have experience in your job before you came to the big leagues. In the right. Yeah, which was minor leagues. The, the minor leagues yeah. uh, opposed to the major leagues, and of course the Philharmonic is one of the big five. So, but my teacher said, 
you represent my school of playing, which I feel is very good, and I'm going to have four other former students of mine also play. So come to my apartment the week before the audition, write a letter to the Philharmonic, and also join the union. You must be a union member. That's important. So I joined the union in October of 1956, and I uh, wrote a letter uh, to the manager, um, who was the personnel manager, was Joseph DeAngelis, who was a member of the bass section before that. And I, dear Mr. DeAngelis, I would like to apply for an audition for the New York Philharmonic. I think I wrote, even though I am female. And he wrote back, dear Mr. O'Brien, your appointment is such and such and such. So I thought that was okay. So I played for Mr. Zimmerman and for my four wonderful colleagues who all became friends and fellow bass colleagues after that. And they recommended me for jobs, which is wonderful. We all felt we represented a certain school of playing. And uh, that audition was, there were no preliminaries. 33 people auditioned at the time. And I didn't know hardly any of them, except the ones that were Zimmerman students. And it was in the club room at Carnegie Hall on the second floor. And no screen, nothing. And they just told you, you will play a short solo, and then there will be sight reading. So, so you were so not even on stage? No. no. It was in the club room on the second floor. It was like a big room, which is now where they have tables and chairs for people to sit, you know, between... They have to the times they have to play, so it was sort of informal, and I wasn't scared because I just knew that I was well trained, and I would just go in there, and I would I was a good sight reader by then, and and I knew a lot of the repertoire, so um, I went in, and I was told later I have no memory of it because it just is all a blur, you know, and so many years ago. But Zimmerman told me later he was on the committee along with the first bass and the other principal strings. He said you played really well, and. Um, the, the personnel manager, Doji Angela, said, uh, well, we, can't, we don't have any ladies' room, so we can't take any women players. So that's what I heard. I wasn't there. I didn't hear it myself, but that was what I was told. So I thought that was interesting, but I felt that as long as I played well, and I got some jobs later because of that, because my reputation went around New York that I was a good player. So the next time uh, was 1961, and I had been on tour with New York City Ballet, Five years after I joined, there was another opening in the Philharmonic, which happens usually somebody dies or retires or both, and very seldom. So my teacher said, well, you should go. And I said, I can't. I've been on tour with New York City Ballet for three weeks. I haven't had time to practice because when you go and you go a different city every night, they pack the base immediately and ship it out to the next city. So you don't have time to practice. He said, no, no, you've got to take it. So I took it, and I got to the finals, but I didn't do very well. And I was very embarrassed because I didn't play my best. But that was okay. A very good young player uh, got the job, who later on, five years later, when I won the audition in 1966, one of the reasons there was an opening was because Bill Ryan went to Boston and became assistant principal base in Boston. So I felt that by the time I got to my third audition, I felt, well, I'm a good professional. I can do the job. I know that I can walk in there and do an excellent job from day one. So it's okay. I still have the ballet job. I did a lot of freelancing. I played a lot of chamber things, and I played a lot of one bass recordings. And so I thought, okay, but I'll, I'll go. I'll prepare myself very well, and, and I will go. So I remember the preliminaries were in little separate rooms on the sixth floor. They were, um, di they divided up the committee so they could handle more people. Someone told me there were 70, 75 or 76 players that applied for two openings because Bob Gladstone left to be principal base of Detroit and Bill Ryan left to be assistant principal in Boston 
and Fred Zimmerman retired. So there were three openings. The third opening was not advertised, but Homer Minch, who was a member of the section from 1939, 38 or 39, until you probably have a list there, he was, he was in the orchestra until 1948, and he quit to freelance in New York. So you went into the prelims? So I went into the prelims, and there were the two people that listened to me, I remember, and this was without screens yet, um, were William Linzer, the first viola, and Bob Bernand, the principal bass. And Bob Bernand, I knew, liked my playing because he had complimented me before. And he was a very nice man. Also, he used to ask me when I ushered, and he knew that I was a bass player, he used to ask me, does the Mahler solo sound better with the mute or without a mute? Why don't you go in the back of the hall, you know, before the hall opened, and listen and tell me which you think is better? I mean, he was a very sw sweet man and very kind and nice, and I thought that was really it. So I felt comfortable with him. Mr. Linzer was not so polite. He began to question the addition that I used of the Bach Gig that I played from the first cello seat. That was one of the, my solos. So uh, he, I said, well, uh, Mr. Zimmerman uh, gave me the addition, and I'm copying the Casals Boeings. And then Mr. Bernay and said, oh, be quiet, Bill, and let the girl play, which I thought was very <laughs> lovely of him, and I was felt good. So I made it into the finals. I think there were six or, or seven of us in the finals, and it was in the boardroom because the stage was busy. Oh, wow. They put a platform, I would say maybe not quite as high as this desk, up at one end of the mm. table, and Bernstein and the principal strings were sitting along the table. Bernstein was wow. at the head of the table. It was the boardroom table, big, long table. And whoever the bass player was had to stand on this slight platform. You climbed on the platform with your instrument. Then they put the music in front of you. They said, okay, play your solos. So I played the last movement of the Bach first cello suite, the Gigue. And then I played the solo from the Ginastera Variation Concertante because I had given the first performance of that with Stokowski in Carnegie Hall in 1962. I played principal that week, and Stokowski had asked me to play the solo. So I'd, I felt I loved the solo. It made the bass sound very good and was kind of virtuoso and melodic. And So I played those two things, and then they gave me Mozart 40th, Ein Heldenleben, which has a lot of difficult licks. That's one of the things I picked out to listen to. And... Um, and what else, and a couple of other things, and a surprise, William Schumann, the American Festival Overture, which has a nice little bass soli for the whole bass section at the beginning of a fugue section. And it sort of goes da dum da dum bum 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 ba and goes on and on, and it goes on into triplets all over the instrument. And I played it, and one of the committee said, have you ever seen this before? Because obviously people had messed it up before. I suppose that's why they asked. And I said, well, I think I played it 12 years ago at Juilliard, and everybody laughed. They thought that was hilariously funny because I remembered something. But Well, it's not something you forget because I remember the bass section at Juilliard at that time was all Zimmerman students, and we used to practice together for an hour before the 9 o'clock in the morning rehearsal so we would sound so perfect. And we worked on this together because we were proud of ourselves, and we knew we could play it well, and we got a compliment from the conductor. Now, let the second violin sound as good as the bass section. So we were, you know, we kind of rested on our laurels the rest of the year. So I remember for that emotional reason that we got a compliment from the conductor. So I think I remembered for that reason. But, you know, I probably didn't play it perfectly, but I gave a good account of it. So, so. Well, they uh, were a tough group. So, well, yeah. I think so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and I can't remember. They gave me some other things, but, uh, but I can't. Those were the three or four things that I so remember. So it was John Crigliano. 
Um, there. I think that he probably, probably John Carigliano, uh, Lauren Monroe, Lauren Monroe was first cello. And he yelled out bravo after I played the Bach. And I was, oh, that made me feel so good. Oh, that's wonderful. I really was thrilled with that. And then, of course, it must have been the principal second was Leo Ribb, I think. I'm pretty sure. And Mr. All. Bernstein, yeah. of course. Mr. Bernstein was sitting, you know, with his usual cigarette. And I do remember the clouds of smoke. And, um, and then Jimmy Candido was the other person that won. And we became friends for like the next 35 years. We played on the same stand for 25 years. He was a lovely person. But anyway, my, my audition at the end, I then went back to my job across the uh, plaza to New York City Ballet. I had a performance that night. And when I got home, there was a message on my answering service from Mr. DeAngelis, who was still the personnel manager. Congratulations, Oren, you played very well. <laughs> Kind of very authoritative, you know. And then I told my stand partner at the ballet, Teddy Flowerman, and he took me out to dinner. So. Um, but you have stories with Toscanini, for instance, and oh, and some of the other different, disciplined different. disciplinarians about yes. shaming people or, or oh well, just, yelling. There are famous recordings of Toscanini. Mm-hmm. One of my students sent me. It's on YouTube, and actually. Zimmerman used to play for us students uh, a 78 recording of Toscanini screaming at the basses, Bassi, Bassi, play short, play short, the, what the contrabassi, the cartoni, cardboard basses. What's the matter with you can't play short enough? He wanted articulation. So, so, sembrano dei carri, carri, non so mica sto meglio, And that's something also that Bernstein wants. See, if you notice Bernstein recordings, they have crisper rhythm than most. You mm. will notice that rhythm is crackling and very, very clear. And of course, that's a hangover from all the people that were trained by Toscanini in the orchestra, too. Well, let's, let's listen to, <laughs> from our big list... Yes. <laughs> How about Beethoven's fifth, the third movement? First of all, uh, I noticed that the tempo was was very nice, it was quick, but the sound is a little woolly, which means it's hard to control the uh, volume and the clarity on gut strings, mm. which the basses were using in those times. But there were wonderful players. I know my teacher joined in 1930, so he was there, and I know some of the other players that were there were, were wonderful players. It's just a little bit, it's also very soft. I don't know if the recording equipment at the time didn't pick up some of the lower register. Or Toscanini got them to play so pianissimo that that's what he wanted on the stage. It was wonderful. You know, it took him a while, Toscanini, to, yes. to like recording. He stopped oh. recording for a while, saying it just was. He didn't, he didn't like it. Not, He didn't like, like the, the te- artificiality. He didn't of like it. the technology. It couldn't get what he needed. What I he don't blame him. And Nobody's ever satisfied with what they sound like. You know? well, but then he picked it back up. I think uh, in the mid '30s, mm-hmm. uh, more of that. But let's see. You had. I wanted to go over. So you. So Zimmerman was here. 1930 to 1966. 
you know, this this is I want to show you this list here because this yes. is the kind of thing that I started to look at to look at the oh, overlap. Yes. yes. And so, you know, Anselm Fortier. Fortier was was retired the year that I came. I think he retired 1952. That's when Bob Bernan became but principal. But he must base. be a legend. Yes. Well, do you know much about him? I do because he had Parkinson's disease in the last part of his life. Well, I think that the bigger uh, influence on Zimmerman was Reinsagen Uh because Reinsagen taught many bass players in New York. Most of the Met bass section when I was playing were Reinsagen Reinsagen and Zimmerman students. And that's what's phenomenal is that Reinshagen yes. and Manoli Manoli was his teacher, right? Are in the orchestra together from the from the eighteen nineties. And and Manoli goes back to eighteen seventy nine. Right. Manoli is eighteen so he's a Theodore yes. Thomas yes. orchestra member. Right. Right. But in, in, in the section, in the bass yes. section. Yes. I mean it, it is remarkable. Yes. You had so Bob Brennan, who yes. started in thirty three. Right. And then Carlo Raviola, right? Thirty-eight. There was he, a bass player with the name of Raviola. That's right, true. It's right. not made up. And he'd started in nineteen thirty-eight mm-hmm. at Homer Minch, nineteen thirty-eight. But then he left, and he came back. He left in nineteen forty-eight, and he came back in sixty-six. So it. he wasn't there. He was For busy making twice as much money as the guys in the Philharmonic. No, right. he did every recording. He did every toothpaste commercial. We used to play outside chamber music jobs together. Ah, you know, okay. with small orchestras with two basses and right. stuff like that. And, so, and then Benjamin Schlossberg. Benny Schlossberg, he was wonderful. Started in '36, but he was there from that. He the, was wonderful. The bass section has the most kind of overlapping continuity. continuity. That's interesting. Right. Well, to go back, you know, yeah, there were very few um, openings. Always, only when somebody died, usually was there an opening. It was very rare. There was l- less turnover, in other words. Right. Yeah. Well, we all influenced each other. You know, I, <laughs> I used to ask the older players about conductors because I was so curious and they would always have stories. I would like to hear the um, what you just did, the Toscanini Trio. saying that the second time through. The second time they did the trio, it was better together. The first time was a little insecure. I felt that some players, maybe the cellos, maybe the basses, maybe one or two, didn't understand the tempo the Toscanini was giving, and they didn't pick it up as quick. But by the second time, they understood, and they could play it perfectly. Okay. So it's, it, it happens. You know, it happens that a conductor... Either maybe the conductor was so tough on them in rehearsals that some of them were scared. It's possible. That's human, you know? So you, you, it's easier to play it the second time through because you're, you're sure of exactly what the tempo is. So I, I heard a little, what I would say, wooliness, which is partly the gut strings, but partly a little bit, a couple of people weren't exactly together with the others. Right. I'm sorry to say, but Toscanini was right to yell. <laughs> you know, he was mad if, they, if things weren't perfect. Sure. And... and uh, that was one of his features. So I'd be curious to hear the same movement with Bruno Walter to see if it's a different tempo. Mm-hmm. 
so different and it's marvelous, but you see, this is why you have to know these two different approaches to teach properly and to play in an orchestra. What about mazurs? You know, it's a difference in, you know, what, 30, 40 years later recording techniques, too. You can get more of the real sound of the orchestra. But I still like the two interpretations of Toscanini and Bruno Walter. To me, they're both so different. They are different. And I tell whoever comes in for coaching for an audition, I always tell them to be careful to be prepared for two different tempos in the trio. Mm. Some conductors like the same tempo as the beginning, which is 76 to the, uh, which is 96 to the dotted half note, that da-da-da-da-dee-da-dee-da-da, that, that's that tempo in one. And if con a conductor wants the same tempo in the trio, dum da 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 dum you have to play the eighth notes on the string and then the quarter notes dum dup 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 off the string. If you take it the slower tempo like Bruno Walter does, most older conductors liked the trio at a slightly more relaxed tempo like a minuet in a Mozart or a Haydn symphony. Hmm. That's a tradition. The trio is always a little bit slower and they would take it slower, 76 to the dotted half note. And then you play the eighth notes off the string and the quarter notes staccato on the string, but uh. very short. So you have to have these two different techniques ready in case you go to an audition and you play it the way that you decide you like it. And then the conductor says, now would you play it faster and off the string or on the string and slower or whatever, whatever they want. And then you have to be able to do it. So that's something that if you play in the Philharmonic, you've seen it those ways and you have done it those ways and you're prepared for it. Isn't it remarkable so. with all of the talk about following to the composer's, you know, wishes, wishes yes. and yet you hear these two Toscanine Walter and it's night and day. Very different. Very, Very different. different. Right. Yeah. And as you're saying, you still teach a musician to be ready. To be ready for something for else. Well, that's right. the, the definition of flexibility. I think that quality is prized uh, for many, many uh, decades not just recently. It's the quality of being flexible is something that I think every really good conductor wants in a musician that they choose. Because also Bernstein came the later part of his life, he took much slower mm -hmm. tempos than he did earlier. And they say that's because you get older, but I think it was because he wanted each piece of music that he loved to last longer. He didn't want to he didn't want the music to stop. Right. Do you remember that last performance he did Tchaikovsky of the Tchaikovsky Six? Six. We thought we were going to oh die. The last page is a series of syncopated rhythms in the bass and cellos. Da, 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 da. And he would wait with the upbeat of the melody. Body. And he would wait so we would go da, 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 da. Only starting our, our rhythm again after he got to the downbeat of each bar. That was really a challenge, but we, we didn't know if it was going going to be together, but it was, and it's a fantastic recording, but I think someone told me the last movement lasts 20 minutes. Oh, it's huge. It's twice as long as any other conductor. Right. Well, I thought that it's just because Bernstein did not 
wanted to end and he felt it that way and he, he he came in the first rehearsal I remember he said I have thought about this now for years and I'm doing it completely different from what I did 20 years ago interesting he said I've studied it and studied he never stopped studying See, right. that's the thing about being a musician that's so wonderful you never learn everything you he, can't ever know everything you can't ever know enough even Mazur would say for the I mean as much as he knew about every Beethoven symphony and every edition of that every was his repertoire was Beethoven and Brahms but he still never assumed he knew it all yeah and he would always say he started it anew whether well, that, he did or not but that's he would what say makes that. an interesting conductor right is that somebody that feels that way if they feel okay I know it now and I'm just going to conduct it the same way it becomes routine no. But you have this too. Well, so I think we have the Tchaikovsky sixth. We have Bernstein's mm -hmm. in '64. That's great. You know, my hair stands on end mm. just from hearing the quality of sound that he got. Mm. You know, it's Absolutely. just so wonderful and sustained and dark and heavy and sad and, well, just uh, incredible <sighs> feeling. That The thing that's the most important about music to reach people, of course, is the feeling. Yeah. And if it ain't got that, if it ain't... <laughs> Don't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing, no. you know? And that was Bob Renand. I would okay. rather hear, what for instance, hear? the Rossini Scala di Seto with Gomberg okay. playing the oboe solo. I assume it's Gomberg because that's the big oboe solo. It's okay. a very one of the most difficult in the whole repertoire, and I would love to hear that.
think it's Harold unbelievable. Harold Domberg was a god. Yeah. You know? He uh, was. Oh, my God. He was. That's he, remarkable. It, it, the color, mm-hmm. like in his paintings, you mm-hmm. know? Right. Because he was a painter, too. Because he was a painter he was in a his painter. spare time, right. you know? Yeah. So was Zimmerman. That was their hobby. Oh, and, you know, in the old Carnegie, in the bar, once a year they had an artist show of people in the orchestra that painted. Right. Right. And for sale. For two weeks they stayed up and they, they sold it. <laughs> oh, I, I just, I get so emotional hearing Gomberg. Yeah. Well, we did. Oh, God. It's just outstanding. Yes. You know, outstanding. And, and so colorful and so full of life and full of shape. And with all the technique that's going on, which is so difficult, he still manages to make an interesting phrase. Yes. It's not just about notes. No. You know, it's just, oh, and yet he doesn't distort the m- meaning of the music, which is very precise. You know, it's like a coloratura. He doesn't do anything to disturb the flow, but it's all so wonderful. Do you drive inspiration when you're playing and you hear that? Does that does that somehow inform your own playing in... Yeah, yes. because, because you know that if you're going to accompany a solo like that, you have to play very light and crisp, mm-hmm. something that Toscanini was always screaming, you know, mm-hmm. that it had to be cleaner and lighter and crisper and shorter mm-hmm. and more delicate and more accompanying. Yeah, you have to know the difference between when you're playing an important line or something accompaniato. And that's when musicianship steps in. And if you have somebody like that to accompany, it's really a thrill. You know, it's just... Well, you know, it's like the hardest movement in Mahler Fifth is the slow movement because the pizzicatos very often are on a downbeat when the violin section has a syncopation over the bar line Mm -hmm. and the conductor doesn't give a strong beat because Bernstein used to do this. He used to take a handkerchief and drop it on the floor like this. That He said, that's how I want you to play the pits. So he would go like this. And where do you put that? You're used to having something that hits the air. But when you depend on the atmosphere and the conductor creates this magical moment, it happens somehow, and if the whole orchestra is tuned into that same wavelength, it's a miracle, and it's so exciting. Right. It's, it's unbelievable, but also the accompaniment to something, if everybody is listening, which they should as professionals and as musicians, you hear a solo like that, it just makes you want to jump out of your seat and yell, bravo, you know? <laughs> I mean, it's so... Oh, it's, it's just beautiful. Isn't that absolutely enticing? Yeah. Enticing. So what next would you like to hear? I'd like to hear the Shostakovich 10th, the beginning of the last movement has a big horn solo with Jimmy Chambers. And this is the one that you heard when you were... Ushering. Ushering. It, the premiere it made... was 1954, 55, something like that, something like that, I think. And they recorded it the same week, I think, or a week later. And I just remember that all the ushers were just absolutely astounded, and all you know the horn students were there in the in the audience, and it was just so thrilling. The quality of sound and the phrasing, and and it was exciting. It was the most exciting thing about that symphony, actually. Right. It was a beautiful, strange symphony, and it was the premiere of that symphony right. in in right. New York. <laughs>
Shostakovich is is very is so cutting edge right then. Yeah, and it's and especially yes. with this with what's going on in the Soviet Union and all of that is informing all that. I can remember that. ushering uh, Oystrak. David Oistrakh yeah. made his debut with the Philharmonic. Right. He played the Shostakovich first violin concerto and broke a string, and Kirillyana would not give him his violin, and he wouldn't give it to him, which is a supposed you're supposed to hand it over. And the s second guy, who I think was Michael Rosenker, had to give his violin, and then he took the violin and replaced the string and then gave it back eventually. But I remember we all the students were scandalized that Corigliano didn't want to hand over his violin because we funny? thought that was hilarious, you know. But anyway, right. Oystruck just played fantastic. All right, That's tell great. me what's the next one here. Cause well, I'm... let's go for Stravinsky Pulcinella with Bob Bernan playing the bass solo. Okay. And the movement is the Vivo movement. That's the bass solo. <laughs> so fast. That's the fastest I've ever heard it. I think Bernstein felt it was probably funnier faster. This is 1960. It, 1960. Yeah. Wow. Well, so. gut strings. My hat is off to you, Bob. It's, it's wonderful. It's powerful. And you didn't have a heart attack when he <laughs> trotted out this tempo at rehearsal. I, it's just amazing, really. It's absolutely, it's, that's one for the books. You know, we have a 1999 <sighs> performance with Gene Levinson in Mazur. Really? want to hear that oh, one? Oh, sure. Let's hear that one. Okay. Oh, goody. Okay. Steel strings and modern technique. Wow. <laughs> Thank you. 
is so clean and so crisp. Congratulations, Eugene Levinson. It sounds marvelous. It sounds stylish, and it's a powerful sound. And the, the trombone is great. I tell you, I admire my colleagues. Well, I really admire my Joe colleagues. That's Joe Alessi in that Joe, one, you know? Joe and Eugene, you, just, uh, you held the banner up for the <laughs> Philharmonic. That's just great. I tell you, it makes your students very proud, yes, I'm sure. I'm Absolutely. sure. Absolutely. Well, I'd be curious to hear... Stravinsky's Rite of Spring, the last page, like from, I think it's from number 140 on. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the magic number. Is it the end? It's at the end, the last page of the Rite of Spring. It's bum, 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 beam, <coughs> bum, um, bum, 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 the bass part, bass and timpani and tuba. I'd just be curious of the difference between Stravinsky's 1940 and Bernstein It's interesting. I thought that the Stravinsky sounded a little cleaner, but lighter because it was an earlier time of recording. Hmm. So, and the bass frequencies aren't captured as well in the earlier recordings. Right. But Bernstein cer certainly is exciting. It certainly, 
<laughs> is, and I remember it's very exciting playing it with him. We played it with him many, many times. I don't remember if we re-recorded it with him after that. Possibly not. I don't know, but we played it many times. Right. I don't think you did, we but didn't. I don't but think maybe. we did. But it was tremendously exciting, and he just drove it mercilessly to the end, you know. Um, but uh, it's so fascinating from the standpoint of trying to be accurate and yet having to go if the conductor goes forward. You have to, you know, cheat a little bit on the rhythms in, in bars in certain places, I noticed, in Stravinsky, too. Right. That there, there was a little bit of uh, having to rush ahead into the next bar because obviously the conductor was conducting that way. So, but it was fascinating, and uh, I, I like both of them, of course. I like the, the earlier one sounded a little more distant it did, to my didn't ears. It? There right. was more power with the second one. Mm-hmm. So, well, and Bernstein. that could be just a placement of the microphones, Possibly. too, at that time as well. And Possibly, that kind of thing. too. I felt badly for the Pulcinella solo. I don't think the bass had a close enough mic. Mm-mm. I really would have preferred Mm-mm. the mic to be inside the bass, if possible, <laughs> because the bass is not a loud instrument like the trombone. Trombone is the loudest instrument in the orchestra, really. Right. Well, I, I think that's why, you know, that's before Larry came. Yes. So, you know, I think yes. it's just very, you know, he really does. He does he specific does bring it microphone out. settings. Right. Oh, sure. I see yeah, him on stage yeah, yeah. before every uh, every concert, sure. Right, right. So it's it's, there's... Lots of possibilities more now to hear what's actually coming out, but really bass has to fight to be heard, especially in a big hall with a large audience. It's it's really a chamber setting is really more ideal. But this is I tell you this is so much fun, Barbara. Thank you for letting me do this. Oren, thank you for coming. <laughs> I'm kidding. I mean, you know, we've you you've now reached fifty years. I've only I've only been here now I think thirty three. Oh, so only thirty three. Thirty three. So <laughs> so, uh, but it it's it's always. It's always so much fun to talk. Thank you for listening. I'd like to thank Orrin O'Brien for coming in to talk with us today. It has been so much fun. For deeper digging into the programs, rosters, and even the marked scores used by the conductors we talked about today, please visit the New York Philharmonic Leon Levy Digital Archives at archives.nyphil.org. Further thoughts, ideas, and insights about our discussion are always welcome. Please email archives at nyphil.org. The recording engineer for this podcast is Ian Good. The program was edited by Charles Van Tassel, who also composed our podcast theme.